Al Jazeera podcast. Palestinians in Gaza suffer a humanitarian catastrophe, bombed and besieged by Israel with nothing allowed in and no way out. The UN is blocked on the ground and the Security Council is polarised and paralysed by veto. What role can the UN play in Gaza? I'm James Bayes and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast where we dissect, analyse and help define major global stories. So let's bring in our panel of guests to discuss all of this. In Geneva, Mukesh Kapila, a professor at the University of Manchester in the UK and a former UN humanitarian coordinator. In Alexandria, in the US state of Virginia, is Yusuf Munea, the head of the Palestine and Israel programme at the Arab Centre, Washington, D.C. And in London, we have Chris Gunnis. He's a former UN Relief and Works Agency spokesperson, but he doesn't work for them anymore. He's speaking to us in an independent uh, capacity. Let me start with you, Chris, because we've already had four Gaza wars before and you were there speaking on behalf of the UN from Jerusalem about the situation in Gaza. When you see what has happened this time, the fact the death toll has far exceeded the death toll in 2014, are you surprised in any way how bad things are? I'm not surprised because the blockade has continued. I am surprised by the sheer loss of life and the lack of hope. Um, Looking forward, um, what I'm hoping is that the UN will be allowed to take trucks in. UNRWA before this conflict was taking in 500 trucks a day. So, you know, that's the level we've got it up to. 1.1 million people in Gaza are dependent on UNRWA for food. So apart from getting in 500 trucks a day, there's got to be a ceasefire for that. Already 13 UNRWA workers have been killed. Already uh, 13 schools have been hit. Now we hear the latest report from UNRWA, half a million people in UNRWA schools. Um, health clinics have been hit as well. So we need a proper ceasefire. And we need to look at the UNRWA buildings. UNRWA has 11 food distribution centres across the Gaza Strip. If they're going to get in huge amounts of food, obviously those warehouses, there may be structural damage after this intense Israeli bombardment. And there's got to be a ceasefire so that people can come and collect the food. So a massive logistical and I dare say political um, operation in order to get this ceasefire going. So a huge amount of work, I believe, that UNRWA, 13,000 of my former colleagues are there. They've stood by the people of Gaza in their most desperate hour of need in the last four wars. They will continue to do that. But make no mistake, UNRWA is on its knees. Financially also, they've put out a flash appeal for 100 million. Well, that has got to be met because we've got to get food, we've got to get water, and by the way, fuel. Israel's not yet said it will allow fuel in. Well, there's no point getting water. I mean, it's got the pumping station, the desalination plant, that's got to work. So we need security, we need a huge amount of trucks, 500 a day to go in through Rafa. Rafa was bombed recently. It's a very small, um, one road in one direction, one road in the other. So there is a huge amount of work, financial for UNRWA, logistical to get the, uh, the, the Rafa cross functional and also security. There's got to be a ceasefire so that this massive humanitarian need can be met. Mukesh, we know that there's been work going on trying to arrange some sort of aid going into Gaza for well over a week now. And finally, 
President Biden, it seemed, got some progress. But as Chris said, uh, you know, hundreds of trucks before the war used to go into Gaza. And initially, the deal is just for 20 trucks. You were a former humanitarian coordinator for the UN and resident coordinator in Sudan. How on earth, if you were in the job now in, in Gaza, how on earth would you prioritise what to send if you've only got 20 trucks? Well, I think the 20 trucks, uh, I hope, are just uh, symbolic to test the, uh, the, 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 the route and uh, to build confidence. And I hope uh, from 20, it'll grow to 2,000 or even, even more. Uh, having said that, uh, uh, I think there has to be prioritization. Obviously, food and water and healthcare uh, dominates uh, as uh, elsewhere. But at the same time, as I think just been said, it is not uh, just to send in uh, relief trucks. There has to be uh, enough peace, enough truce, so that people can get it and can actually benefit from it. And so the idea that you can carry on fighting uh, and then uh, try to mitigate some of the suffering by sending in uh, a few trucks uh, here and there and then hoping that people will uh, somehow get some relief is, I think, uh, a very flawed prospect. And in fact, uh, I can imagine some serious security and logistic issues happening ahead and even costing lives if there isn't a de-conflicting of, uh, of relief provision and relief uptake and, of course, the ongoing uh, uh, bombing and fighting. Yusuf, what we're hearing, though, from the Israeli military is, yes, Netanyahu is letting some aid in, but there's no suggestion that they're stopping their military um, operation. The bombardment has been continuing, including around Rafah in, in recent hours, and there's no suggestion that they're not going to go to the next stage, the ground offensive. That's unfortunately absolutely correct. Um, the level of uh, horrific violence that we are seeing unleashed now on Gaza, everything that we're hearing from folks on the ground, who, by the way, have lived through far too many uh, wars, uh, are saying that this is worse than anything that they've ever experienced in terms of the, the, the sheer level of, of destruction and cost um, to human life. Uh, of course, Humanitarian aid is important. Uh, the aid workers who are working on the ground despite this uh, are doing heroic things. Uh, but the reality is <clears throat> that humanitarian aid is not going to do a whole lot for people who don't live to receive it, uh, even the little that does trickle in. Uh, and so a, um, you know, a, a, an urgent push needs to be made in this moment to bring a stop uh, to the bombing for an immediate ceasefire, uh, not just so that the conditions can exist to allow humanitarian aid to come in, but because uh, the most urgent concern now uh, is saving lives that do not need to be lost. Um, and we have seen far too many of them lost already. If I can come I'm back to you, Chris. It, it, on what's just been said, James. Yep. If I may, I mean, Palestinians do not want to be on aid. They want to live decent, independent lives. So building on what has just been said, of course, all those things must happen. But we need to make sure that ultimately the blockade is lifted so that the constant conversation is about what's being allowed into Gaza, bread, right, you know, all these. We need to look at what's coming out of Gaza. Palestinians are entrepreneurial, they're educated, they're motivated, they're brilliant people. Gaza could be the Singapore of the Middle East if it was allowed to be. So as well as a discussion about letting 
food and, and other materials in, there has to be also at the same time some kind of discussion about what is allowed out. Gaza is a hugely productive society. There was agricultural produce, there was garment industry, there's a food industry, drinks, there's all sorts of stuff. And in order for Gaza to be put back on its feet, there must be a proper conversation about what is let out. And that's very important. Even at this stage, those conversations should start. If I can stay with you, Chris, for a moment, if you can help our viewers, just a little bit more detail on... You know the geography, you know the logistics, you know the Rafa border crossing. Just tell us a little bit more about the Rafa border crossing and uh, Al-Arish, which is the airport about 45 kilometres away, where apparently there's now... that They've got a great deal of humanitarian assistance that's been flown in. I'm told an estimated 3,000 tonnes is there. Um, how difficult will it be getting that in through the choke point of Rafa and then distributing it? Well, I've been through the Rafa crossing with Desmond Tutu, as it happens, on his mission many years ago. And it's a single lane road in one direction, at least it used to be, coming out and a single lane going north, going into Gaza. And it was bombed by the Israelis. So it very, very rapidly has got to be repaired. Um, Al-Arish is nearby, and you can get from Al-Arish to, to Rafa very, very quickly. But can I say also, James, that when we had from the Israelis many years ago this security narrative that if we let stuff in or we let stuff out, there's going to be weapons and bombs, the European Union and others built the Kerem Shalom crossing point. It is a huge industrial scale transshipment point of the sort you get in a point at a port with dozens of lanes for trucks and container lorries. And that was built in a way which was apparently seen to Israel's legitimate security concerns. Now, I don't know what state it's in now, but the very purpose of Kerem Shalom was precisely what we are discussing now. And that is to get in in industrial scale levels of products so that 1.1 and more million people can have the food and the water and the medicine and the fuel and all the things that a society needs. So yes, if Rafa is the only game in town, Sure, it has to be used. You've got Al-Arish nearby. Things can be brought in. But ultimately, the world created this thing called the Karim Shalom crossing point, and it should be opened up immediately because only Karim Shalom, Shalom in its present form will allow in the vast levels of assistance and other materials that are needed. Yusuf, when it comes to the things that are needed, the needs of the, of the people, the desperate needs of the people of Gaza, um, Chris just mentioned fuel. Um, tell us how important fuel is, I mean, for, for pumping water, desalination plants, but probably most importantly for the hospitals in Gaza. Yeah, it's, it's hard for people to really wrap their heads around what life uh, in Gaza is like. The uh, lack of electricity has been um, uh, you know, a constant condition in the Gaza Strip now for years. Uh, it has uh, increasingly gone, gotten worse over time, uh, at, particularly since the Israelis bombed Gaza's only power plant in 2006. It's never really been able to recover. Uh, and um, uh, the, the presence of electricity uh, sometimes can be a few hours a day, sometimes can be um, not at all. And in many places in the Gaza Strip, that is the case now, of course. So fuel has become really uh, a, a backup option for creating electricity through uh, generators, uh, which so many different um, uh, homes, uh, institutions, 
um, and and um, you know and and plants uh, require to be able to function, whether it comes to water desalination or you know keeping the lights and the machines uh, on in hospital wards that are trying to desperately save the lives of people who have been um, who have been brutally injured in uh, in these attacks. And I and I do want to just add one thing here in relation to the conversation about the the crossings and Rafah and so on. Um, you know, a, a lot here depends on the United States' ability to get the Israelis uh, to uh, allow this to happen. Um, and one episode that I think was missed by a lot of folks is the other day, the United States Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, uh, was meeting with uh, the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, for eight hours. During this time, the United States was telling its citizens in the Gaza Strip to head to the Rafah crossing so that they could be able to exit safely. And it was during this time, while the Secretary of State was meeting with the Israeli Prime Minister and telling his citizens to go to Rafah because it was safe, um, that the Israelis bombed the Rafah crossing again. And so I think a, a major issue here uh, is that the the only player that really has uh, leverage and the ability to restrain the Israelis um, is unable to even do so for the protection of its own citizens, even when its secretary of state is sitting next to the Israeli prime minister. And I think that should send a great degree of concern to all of us uh, about uh, how much leverage there is uh, over um, uh, Israel in this moment, uh, as it is denying access uh, to humanitarian aid to everybody there, and also, of course, raining bombs down on the population. Mukesh, as a former senior humanitarian official, um, even if you get aid in, is it, is it, is it good enough if, if you don't have a ceasefire to deliver that aid? I think it's extremely difficult. I think uh, that if you are, uh, you know how the humanitarian scene has changed. In the old days, uh, when there were wars, you agreed a pause in the war, and then you supplied aid, and then people went, went back to fighting. Now we're expecting humanitarians to actually supply aid in the middle of the fighting for hospitals to function, even as the bombs are raining on you. And I think this is not a tenable situation. In fact, probably more people are being placed at risk, uh, not just aid workers who lose, lose their lives, but also people who are coming to that. So I, I and I'm really not sure whether the focus on aid getting in is really that important compared to actually what we need to be doing, which is to have a more sustained cessation of hostilities. Uh, even if we were to increase the number, amount of aid going in through the through the Rafa uh, border with the roads repaired and so on, it is going to be marginal to survival chances of the people. So either the people have to get out or they have to come to a safe zone where aid can be supplied uh, safely. So I do worry that quite a lot of discussion about humanitarian aid is almost to use humanitarian uh, aid as an alibi for uh, not being able to do uh, the other things. And I think the attention has to be on the political side as much as on the aid side. OK, Mukesh, let me pick up that point about a possible ceasefire or humanitarian pause, because it's something that the UN Security Council had before them, two different resolutions, a Russian resolution that didn't pass the Security Council, and then uh, a Brazilian draft, which originally had called for an immediate ceasefire, and after lots of negotiations, including uh, the US's allies, the UK and France, watering it down, uh, became humanitarian pauses. And yet, the US still 
vetoed that resolution. It would have passed otherwise. There were 12 other countries uh, in favour of the resolution. Listen now to what the US ambassador said to explain why she raised her hand and vetoed a resolution calling for humanitarian pauses. We are on the ground doing the hard work of diplomacy. And while we recognize Brazil's desire to move this text forward, we believe we need to let that diplomacy play out, especially when Secretary General Guterres, President Biden, Secretary Blinken, and regional actors are engaged in intensive dialogue on the very issues we are deliberating on today. Yes, resolutions are important. And yes, this council must speak out. But the actions we take must be informed by the facts on the ground and support direct diplomacy efforts that can save lives. The council needs to get this right. Chris, listen to that. I think the excuse was we cannot have a humanitarian pause because it will get in the way of diplomacy. What's the point of diplomacy? Well, more to the point, it will get into the, in the way of Israel's war aims. It's absolutely disgraceful. It's disgusting to hear that being said. I've lived through these wars, and, and let me tell you, at the end of all of these Gaza bombardments, when they're going on, America always gives Israel, I hate to use this phrase, a grace period, a period in which they say, OK, you go and achieve your war aims, you carry on bombing, you can carry on killing civilians, but, you know, don't embarrass us too much, let it be a couple of weeks. But after this, you know, egregious, this terrible violence on the 7th of October, I imagine that America is giving Israel a much longer period, a grace period. It's utter hypocrisy to hear an American ambassador say these things about giving diplomacy a chance. We've lived, those of us who've been there and seen these, lived through these terrible bombardments, we all know that America says to Israel, there's going to be a grace period for you, take a while, you know, whatever, try and, you know, deal with international humanitarian law. I'm sorry to be cynical, but this is what has happened. If America wanted to put its hand up and vote with that resolution yesterday, they could have done. They could have sent a, a message to the Israel that enough is enough. You've destroyed more of Gaza than you've ever done in a single war. The time has got to stop. Frankly, as far as I'm concerned, that is the use of international aid as a political tool. It's condemnable. Mukesh, you had a point? Well, well, uh, I do have a point. I, I have many points. But the first one is I don't hear uh, Linda, um, the American ambassador, uh, quite saying that. What I heard more is that the American administration wants... Uh, to get credit for their diplomacy. So how can you have a Security Council resolution that when the US president is in the air coming to uh, uh, coming to, to Jerusalem? So I think there's a bit of national ego here involved more than anything else. The Americans have invested such a lot in that area, and they somehow want to get the credit for whatever pauses or ceasefires or humanitarian access they've been. That's one thing. And, and the second thing I want to say, and this is even more important, is that I don't think we should be too fixed up on this. Uh, there have been many, many Security Council resolutions in the past and on other situations before the Security Council got paralyzed. Uh, and uh, it doesn't make any difference. So I think we should be worried about the situation on the ground and practical diplomacy and practical action, not worrying about symbolic words, as well as we shouldn't worry about small changes in phraseology to please uh, every constituency on the Security uh, Council. We're distracted by this. Nothing is going to be solved uh, uh, in the Security Council or in New York. That's all the action is. 
action is on the ground. The action is whether or not people live or die according to what access they have and what practical diplomats can do on the ground in terms of affecting the, the things. So people should not get up to, to head up about Security Council resolutions, in my opinion. OK, well, I am, I'm still going to ask about it, though, and I'll ask Yusuf about this. Um, I'm hearing from diplomats that the US was signalling that it could probably support this resolution. In fact, the Chinese ambassador said that in the Security Council. He said the fact they vetoed was nothing short of unbelievable. Yeah, it's absolutely disgraceful. And I think it's important to keep in mind that there were previous attempts at the Security Council to put forward uh, a, uh, a resolution calling for a ceasefire with different language that was rejected not just by the United States, uh, and, of course, there was a number of modifications made to language, which uh, was then uh, agreeable enough to everybody except the uh, United States, um, who, of course, vetoed it anyway. I think that the excuses given for uh, the veto uh, are um, uh, also disgraceful. Uh, but even if we take them at face value, what has American diplomacy achieved in this moment? Uh, the president of the United States was uh, on his way to the region uh, and uh, could not even meet uh, with his key allies outside of Israel uh, to try to get a hold on the situation because the entire region uh, is rejecting uh, the American position on this issue thus far. Um, every moment that goes by, uh, the United States is continuing to lose control over the ability uh, to not just control the situation on the ground in Gaza, but to control the situation throughout an entire region which is on the brink of regional war, which might bring the United States into direct confrontation uh, with, with uh, states in the Middle East again. Um, the United Nations, uh, I, 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 would, I would agree that what is happening on the ground is of, of the utmost importance, but at the same time, the failure of the international system uh, to uphold um, international law uh, and to demand accountability for it is the reason why we are here at this moment. And the continued failure to do that, I think we should only expect, will bring us to more dangerous and horrific moments um, for which it will be much, much harder to, to get out of. Um, and so I think there are tremendous consequences to this. American policy uh, thus far on this, on this uh, war has been to give Israel the maximum amount of space and time uh, to exact what the Israeli prime minister called mighty vengeance um, in the Gaza Strip. Uh, this is unconscionable on a moral level, uh, and it is incredibly dangerous on a policy level uh, in ways that will impact everybody around the world. Chris, the failure in the Security Council under new um, um, arrangements that came in last year means this actually has to go to the UN General Assembly. They have to have a, a meeting um, on this within 10 working days unless there is an emergency special session called and apparently Russia's going to call one of those. Now, when it comes yes. to the court of 193 countries, uh, they are more favourable uh, to the Palestinians uh, potentially than the Security Indeed. Council where the, where the US has... Um, uh, has a veto. Do you think this could be in the long run dam damaging for the US with regard to the global south? Might it harm them, for example, in explaining their case in Ukraine? 
Well, can I say that when this does move out of the Security Council, I sincerely hope that a bit of balance is injected into this debate and into this narrative, because at the moment, the narrative is about terrorism and it's about Israel's right to defend itself, which I think is partly why the Americans veto this. In fact, the ambassador actually said we wanted something in the resolution about Israel's right to defend itself. But make no mistake that when you talk to Palestinians and other Arab countries about this, there are three causes, underlying causes of the conflict which must be addressed. First of all, the blockade of Gaza, which has seen 2.3 million people subjected to utter indignities, and that has to end. It's an invisible thing. It's not a new story you can point a camera at, but it, from a Palestinian perspective, is the first cause of the conflict that must be addressed. Secondly, the occupation that's gone on since 1967. And what we've seen with the last administration, of the right wing, the far right sector administration, is we've seen increased settlement expansion, Jewish settlers, and with that has come the most appalling settler violence protected by the Israeli army. The, 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 the occupation is the second uh, cause, underlying cause of the conflict the Palestinians would like to see addressed. And very lastly, the dispossession of the Palestinians in 1948. Their entire communities, their societies were dismantled, and, and, and that has never been properly addressed. So unless and until we see those three underlying causes of the conflict Conflict, addressed in a wider debate, perhaps in the General Assembly, I think that Israelis are destined to live in a state of nervousness, anxiety, insecurity, and the people of Gaza, the Palestinians, are likely to have further causes of resentment, brutalization, and radicalization. So I hope that when this debate moves away from the Security Council, some balance can be injected and the underlying causes of the conflict can be addressed as we move away from this narrative of terrorism and Israel's right to defend itself. Of course, Israel has the right to defend itself, but we need to stand back and look at the underlying causes of this conflict. Thank you, Chris. Thank you to all our guests. I'm afraid we have to leave it there. Chris Gunnis, Yusuf Munea and Mukesh Kapila. This episode was produced by Dermot Fleming, Alexandra Byers, Abla Klar and Gemma Harris. Studio sound was by Eli Elhani. The programme was edited by Ahmed Edfakha, Lynn Nguyen, Vanessa Connelly and Joe DeFries. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thanks for listening. Tune in on Friday for our next edition. Coming up on The Take, in the wake of the deadly strike on a Gaza hospital, how are leaders in the region and the world responding? That's The Take by Al Jazeera. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.